Part fourteen of the Blue Review, Volume One, Number One, edited by John Middleton Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Review of Reviews, English, French, Italian. One, the English Reviews. Poetry and Drama is a notable newcomer among the quarterly reviews. Though the bulk of the magazine is to be devoted to criticism, a number of pages in each number are to be given up to the publication of new verse. It is not necessarily any disparagement of the prose articles, though some of them have rather an undergraduate swagger about them, to say that the creative work is more interesting than the critical. Lascelles Abercrombie's verse is always arresting, and his short play, The Adder, which was recently produced at the Liverpool Literary Theatre, is, in some respects, the most challenging thing he has done. The editor of Poetry and Drama is fortunate in having secured so distinguished a contribution to his first number. Among the prose articles, perhaps the most interesting are Edward Thomas's mock eulogy of Ella Wheeler Wilcox, and Henry Newbolt's gallant and discriminating appreciation of Georgian poetry, 1911-1912. to Poems by James Elroy Flecker, Maurice Hewlett, and Michael McCready, and critical papers by Rupert Brooke, Harold Munro, Alga Thorold, A. Romney Green, Leonard Inkster, J. Rodker, Gilbert Cannon, Richard Buxton, and F. S. Flint, go to make up what must be considered a promising first number. In The Manchester Playgoer, John Palmer continues his lively controversy with Gordon Craig, and the number also contains articles by W. L. George, Gilbert Cannon, O. Raymond Dray, Horace Holly, and J. H. Mandelberg, a short play by Gwen John, and drawings by J. D. Ferguson. The April number of the English Review opens with a long poem, or rather a series of short poems, loosely strung together, by William H. Davis, on the old theme, Town versus Country. Rather formless as a whole, the strange city contains passages as delightful as anything Davis has done, and the poem has certainly more distinction than the academic elegy on Swinbourne by John Helston, which neighbours it. Two papers on literature, one written from the inside or artist's point of view, the other from the outside or critic's point of view, would seem to let us into the secret of the business and tell us how it is done. The Storyteller's Craft by Arnold Bennett is a neat and dexterous little lesson in the art of seeing things, while in literature as a fine art, R. A. Scott James, having picked up a few hints dropped by the artists themselves, has, after the manner of critics, tried to formulate them as generalisations. The only contribution to the April British Review which possesses any artistic interest, is W. B. Yeats' poem, The Grey Rock, though we make no pretense of having read through Canon Rawnsley's sequence of sonnets. To the Forum, which always devotes a deal of space to verse, Bliss Carman contributes a series of what he calls Rhythmics, which he introduces with the following suggestive note. The poems printed herewith are taken from a number of studies in Greek and Latin mythology. They are brief monologues or descriptive poems in lyric measures, intended for recitation to the accompaniment of music and dancing, or interpretive motion. This novel art, 
a blend of reading, music and acting, has been gradually evolved in an attempt to find an adequate instrument of training for higher physical education or personal harmonising, an instrument which enlists ecstasy and intelligence in the play of physical exercise, just as they are always enlisted in desirable life. It is a true art, else it never would have served this comprehensive use. It is simple enough and untheatric enough to be adaptable for home use and for primary education, and yet comprehensive enough to be worthy of the complex and subtle skill of the best dramatic artist. It is more lyric than acting, more ornate than reading, more natural than opera, and effects the transformation of poetry into visible beauty in a unique and compelling way. It maintains and enhances the legitimate sorcery which dwells in poetry by giving full value to its rhythmic quality, and it renders the instinctive and primal fascination of dance more rational and noble by supplying it with a theme worthy of its technique. Poems written for the purpose of such presentation must necessarily conform to certain limitations. They cannot meander at will in the delightful fashion of long, meditative lyrics. They must be full of action and movement as an old ballad. Even their similes, metaphors and references should be translatable into the language of plastic motion or suggestion. They must be lyric in form, yet always somewhat dramatic in feeling and scope. 2. The French Reviews The Mercure de France, in its origin and conception, certainly the greatest of all French reviews, has, after twenty-three years, exhausted the creative impulse which used to animate it. It has not evolved with the evolution of other methods and men, and its excellences today are the same as they were ten years ago. In the first place, the excellence of organisation which makes the Revue de la Quinzaine an invaluable record of the world's artistic progress. In the second, the unfailing standard of one or two of its original contributors, chief of whom is Rémy de Gourmont, whose fortnightly Lettres à l'Amazon are a mine of delicate and contemplative wit. In the most recent number before us as we write, March the 16th, the original contents are rather dull. The poem by Louis de Cardonnel, Affiline, is not up to the writer's best level. A rather bizarre short story based upon the psychology of dual personality by Marie M. Bonnet is the best contribution in a somewhat mechanical number. Le Roi est mort. Vive le Roi! The April number of La Nouvelle Revue Française affords ample evidence that it is around this review that the majority of the genuinely creative French writers of the present day are grouping themselves. It is, however, by no means a young review, or even a new review. André Gide, Émile Ferheren, the late Charles-Louis Philippe, Gabriel Moret, André Suarez are all mature writers, all nearer fifty than twenty years of age, and perhaps the most striking characteristic of La Nouvelle Revue Française is its mature eclecticism. The April number begins with a delightful article by André Gide upon the ten best French novels. André Gide has many English admirers, although we doubt whether Mr. Edmund Gosse's rather uncritical eulogy in his latest book of studies has seriously increased their number, and it will be of considerable interest, to them at least, 
to learn Monsieur Gide's selection. We hope to publish a translation of this brief article. Besides, there are other good things in La Nouvelle Revue Française. A further fragment of Charles-Louis Philippe's unfinished story of his childhood, Charles Blanchard, preceded by an account of Philippe's difficulties in writing it, by Monsieur Léon-Paul Farc, Journal du Milliardaire by Valérie Labeau, and Monsieur Andrew Soares, Chronique de Kerdal. The fact that Monsieur André Gide places Stondal at the head of all the novelists of the world is in itself a justification, were any needed, of the special number of La Revue Critique, March the 10th, devoted entirely to Stondal, from unpublished fragments of Stondal's journal to a careful study of Stondal's finances by Monsieur Adolphe Pope, and a delightful article upon his clothes by Monsieur Eugène Massin. The number is a mine of Stendaliana, invaluable to every admirer of the great novelist. We intend to refer to this number at greater length. The last number before us, March the 25th, is naturally something of an anticlimax. It contains, however, an interesting article for lovers of literary antiquities by Charles Le Goffic, Le Ménage de Jean Racine, and its usual complement of excellently critical reviews. La Décoratif, March, continues its admirable series of critical articles upon recent painters, with an article by Mademoiselle Lucie Custurier upon Henri Edmund Cross, who died in May 1910 at the age of 54. Cross was a neo-impressionist, whose work is not generally as well known in England as that of Seurat or Signac. Nowadays we find the spotty technique of the pointillists rather tiresome and demode, and this technique still comes between us and a genuine appreciation of the undoubted merits of Cross. At the end of his life, Cross himself was working away from it, as may be seen in his latest watercolours. But if we accept pointillism, balancing its excellences against its deficiencies, it must be acknowledged that Cross's work provides some of the finest examples of that technique, particularly in Les Petites Montagnes Moresques, which is beautifully reproduced in colour. The other articles include La Nouveau sous le Paquebot France, which does not seem any better than any other new art, and a charming account of Coiffure et Bonnet Ancien by Raymond Croissant. Note, Le Temps Présent, March, a delightful and characteristic Lesson Poétique by Francis Jam, Poème by the Comtesse de Noailles, and an erudite article upon Les Lais de Marie de France by Mademoiselle Henriette Charasson. La Falange, March the 20th, Three Soirs de Flandre by Emile Ferheren. La Renaissance Lyrique Actuelle et la Tradition by Henry Hertz. L'Ile Sonnante is an excellent number, containing a scene of Dion de Poitiers by Maurice de Faramont. La Chienne Empoisonnée, a sketch by Louis Pegot, and good poetry by André Salmon, Fernand d'Ivoire, Tristan d'Erem, Paul Vimereux. 3. The Italian Reviews In La Voce, March the 27th, is an article of great interest. Il Teatro Musicale dell'Ironia o lo Stile dello Strauss by Gianotto Bastianelli in which the writer argues that Strauss, 
morbid in his choice of libretto, is in the conception and execution of his work essentially decadent. With great artists, their conception of action is identical with their religious conception of life. Their nature has two aspects, that of the hero and that of the saint. The world of passions cannot be revealed to the artist in its full value unless the artist himself sees a value in them, unless he discovers in the light of a faith that transcends the material naturalness of the events a profound significance in them. The dilettante of religious belief and of Passino, like D'Annunzio, Wilde, Hoffmannsthal, lack this sense of value. First, they cannot judge their passions, and their effort to do so turns in upon itself, and produces a sad and almost unconscious irony. To such writers, Strauss is the musical counterpart, but Strauss does differ from them, in that he has the courage to recognise this ironical attitude in himself, and to emphasise it by a greater honesty of style. The rottenness of the school of D'Annunzio consists in pretending that underneath the pomp of a grandiose style there exist faith and passion which are not really there. The ironist in literature should have the courage of his irony. This is what Strauss has done. He has found a style that is adequate to the monstrosity of the decadent drama, and he has found it automatically, unconsciously, almost by motor reaction. The ferociously paradistic, chaotically Rabelaisian style of Strauss gives the decadent drama its perfect form, without any equivocation between the truth of the action and the preciousness and idealism of the language. The irony of Strauss is expressed directly and indirectly. To its direct expression belong his rhythm, the colour of his instrumentation and his harmony, his counterpoint, etc., which in Strauss are full of never-ending violence and surprises. To its indirect expression belong all the double entendre, the musical insinuations and suggestions, such as taking up stylistic specimens of other composers, and the adoption of a number of methods discovered by his predecessors or contemporaries, adoptions which in the humorous context of Strauss's compositions, and sometimes even where it does not appear to be humorous, always convey a sense of parody. M. Bastionelli gives as examples the parody of Meyerbeer in Eilzo Sprach Zarathustra. An examination of every one of Strauss's works reveals an almost unvarying irony of the composer's mind towards his own statements, which, expressed by means of a formula, almost always derived, imitated and parodied, produce upon the audience the impression that the composer did not only disbelieve in it, but laughed at it with violent ironical scepticism. This irony is not Socratic, believing and seeking, but the very decadence and degeneration of irony. The decadent theatre, concludes M. Bastianelli, cannot be saved except by the strident laughter of a fierce and gigantic irony. Strauss, unlike all the insincere modern poets, has been able to do this spontaneously by a simple instinct to save himself at least in part. And should we hesitate to honour the ingenuity of music that is not so corrupt as its poetry, and to give praise to one who is certainly our greatest modern musician, in spite of the fact that, like others, he degrades both faith and passion. 
the Rasenia Contemporanea, March the 10th, which now appears fortnightly, contains a short story by Matilde Serrant, Beata, not particularly different from a number of other competent stories which he has written in the past. The psychological conflict in this case, between a young lady and her father, an aristocratic man about town who has left his family. There is also an informative article upon a Balkan writer, Ivo Voinovich of Ragusa, whose dramas, completely unknown in England, have made him the chief literary hero of the Pan-Slav movement. End of Part 14 End of the Blue Review Volume 1, Number 1 Edited by John Middleton Murray Read by Phil Benson in Sydney, Australia